0: hi everyone this is our part two on using the nano vna to test rf equipment in a 75 ohm world environment if you missed part one don't worry about it you can catch it in the rewinds and there's a lot of great stuff in there i'm brady volp founder of nimble this and volp firm this is get your tech on our show on all things Doxis. With us today is John Downey, CMTS technical leader at Cisco Systems. John, welcome back. What's going on in your world?
1: Same old, same old. (laughs) (laughs) Spartan Docs is 3.1, distributed access architectures, um, resiliency, partial mode. I did like the uh, last session we did and glad we're continuing on because uh, going back to basics, I think, is good to... uh, go over once in a while. You know, you just sometimes forget or you, when you hear something the second, third, fourth time, it'll finally sink in. Or if you hear it a different way or from someone else. So uh, going over uh, just the RF basic stuff, I think is good.
0: Yeah. And, and we got a lot of good feedback from the last episode. Uh, I think, and, and this is definitely a different way of presenting it. So For everyone watching, please do uh, put your comments in the chat window, we've got that online. We'll take questions. If you wanna see something we're testing, let us know. Happy to do that. Uh, We did get some good feedback last time on diplex fillers. We're gonna start off testing this uh, the diplex filter using the Nano VNA. We'll get to see the crossover. I'll do a little explanation of exactly what diplex filters are, if you've not heard of those before. Uh, again, if you've not heard of the Nano VNA, I'm not going to go into detail again on that. Please do watch our previous episode on Nano VNA, and we have some other ones out there on that. Um, again, we're, you know, we're focused this time on on testing RF circuitry, and in the 75-ohm world, using that would appreciate it, Yo, if you, if you enjoy watching a comment, please do hit the subscribe button. Click the notification bell if you want to be notified of future episodes. And always, we do appreciate the thumbs up if you like the content that we're doing. Uh, so moving right into this, we're going to get started. We have a few tests that we want to do and try to get them all done today. Uh, we've got the best test at the end. This is the one that John was talking about on LinkedIn if you're following us there. So definitely stay to the end. That's a pretty cool test we're going to be doing. Uh, jumping into diplex filters. So we've had some, some questions, and a lot of times I do training, and, and I do find people don't fully understand diplex filters. Uh, so every piece of equipment has a – every piece of active equipment, I should state, has a diplex filter on the input and output. Um, now, except maybe a 5 or no doesn't have it on the input, does it have it on the output. In summary, a diplex filter is what enables our plant to be two-directional. Send signals in both the upstream and the downstream. Just looking at the diplex filter, we have a common port. We have a, a low-pass port. Uh, that's where our low signals go, basically our return. And we have a high-pass port. So uh, if you think about the input of an amplifier, your signals will de- come in on the low-pass port, or I'm sorry, on the common port, and then once inside the amplifier, your forward signals will, be, will come out on the high-pass side. They will be amplified and conditioned, and they'll come back in on the high-pass side, and on the output of the amplifier, they'll come out on that common port. Similarly, on the return side, your return signals will come in on the common port of the amplifier. They'll get split out, and they'll come out on, your return signals will come out on the low-pass side. They'll get amplified, conditioned, they'll come back in on the low-pass side. You know this saying, on the downstream side, all your signals come in at a common, get stripped off in the high-pass side, conditioned. At the output of the amplifier, they come back in the high-pass side, go out the common. On the reverse, we come in the common, come out the low-pass side, signals get amplified, come back in the low-pass side, come out in the common. That's what splits them all off. If we look into what a diplex filter actually looks like, this... Is a pretty typical filter uh, setup for, or a, a circuitry fil- setup for a diplex filter. Uh, for, and then this is probably kind of old school. What we're seeing here is most diplex filters today have surface mount components. So I've talked about these surface mount components maybe popping off. And if you've seen, you know, maybe me talk about uh, diplex filters in the past, if one of these tiny little components gets adjusted. Uh, if you see this, the toroidal components in air, don't put your finger in an amplifier and start bumping one of these around because that will mess up the diplex filter. We're going to see what the response looks like and, and why that's important in just a moment. And then when these go to surface mount components, uh, the changing in temperature when it gets hot, cold, hot, cold, hot, cold, that can break a, a solder joint on one of the surface mount components and that's really going to change the response that we're going to see on this diplex filter in just a moment so i'm, I'm going to go ahead and connect up the diplex filter on so here so
1: a mad, a mad lib yes uh, cold, cold solder joints that, that's bad just like you mentioned uh cracking the solder joints uh, you're doing a 42-54 split some little background on diplex filters the higher you go on the split the more no man's land you need meaning the split between the upstream and downstream and typically it's about 25% and that's one of our biggest concerns when we start opening up DOCSIS 3.1 to 204 megahertz because now the downstream starts at 258 that's a 50 megahertz of no man's land if we were to open that up to 396 on the upstream 25% of 400 is like 100 megahertz so now you have a 396 upstream, and a 500 megahertz start frequency for downstream. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's a concern when you want to start moving your split higher and higher up because the no-man's land has to open up. Correct. Right? Absolutely.
0: Okay, so I have the uh, diplex filter connected here. And what I'm doing is I'm going into the common port and coming out the low side port here. I'm hoping I have the echo fixed on that overhead camera, maybe not. Um, Going now to the Nano VNA screen here, if we can get that screen up on the window. What we see on a diplex filter at this point, if we go to the, uh, if we recall from the previous videos, S21 is our insertion loss on a diplex filter. I'm going to move marker one over here so uh, John as you mentioned this is a 42 54 split diplex filter the 42 tells us what the roll-off should be on the low-pass side of the diplex filter Uh, so if we see marker one here I, I moved it over to where the diplex filter is rolling off we can see that's right around 42 megahertz that's what we'd expect for a 42 54 diplex filter, so the low-pass side of the diplex filter is right at 42 megahertz. That's where it's rolling off at Um, Right here. We see the roll off and I'm going to take a a reference of that so we keep that in memory Uh, The other important aspect of a diplex filter is how it rolls off so I'm going to select marker one here or I'm sorry marker two and put that over at 54 megahertz. Actually, first I'm gonna drop it down into what we call the valley of the roll-off here. This is where we're isolating the forward path from the return path. This keeps the forward path signals from getting onto the return path. And what we see here is we have about 60 dB of isolation. Now this diplex filter here probably actually has more isolation than that, but what we're seeing is a limitation of the nano VNA Because the Nano VNA doesn't have as much dynamic range as what this Diplex filter actually has meaning where I have this marker 2 down here That probably goes even further into the noise floor than what the Nano VNA is capable of displaying If this was on a professional VNA, we'd probably see that marker 2 Going down to probably about minus 90 DB, which is pretty typical of diplex filters. Anything you want to add on to that, John, before I go into the high pass side?
1: Well, when you and I both worked at C Core. Yes. You probably remember we uh, we were we had to replant our diplex filters from a 4254 to a forty fifty-four. Cause if it's too tight, you have to make the roll-off really tight, like a brick wall. Yep. If you loosen it up to 40 megahertz, you could you could ease off on the 54 brick wall. You could kind of slope it more, which gave us less chrominance and luminance delay on channel two because channel two sat right there at 54. You know, 55.25 was video, but the chrominance and luminance delay was they used to call it the comic book effect. The color would start smearing away from the black and white on channel and two. Got past, yeah, on channel two, just channel yep. two. So we had to loosen up the diplex filter so channel two wouldn't get more than 170 nanoseconds of chrominance lumens delay. And we would see that after seven amps in cascade. So there were ways around that. One, you change the diplex filter. Two, you get rid of channel two. (laughs) Three, you do a chrominance lumens delay negative in the head end. So as you go through the amplifiers and halfway through, you're back to where you started. And then you can go and double your cascade and you're back to 170 nanoseconds, which was the FCC spec.
0: Yeah, and and, and I want to actually want to add some to that. It wasn't so much that we were loosening it up. What we were doing is we were taking the forty two fifty four megahertz diplex filter and shifting it to a forty fifty two megahertz diplex filter. So the channel two, uh, it, which channel two starts at, um, well, it's it rides at 40, 54 megahertz by by moving it from fifty four down to forty two megahertz that was allowing us to not have any, it's basically, we, we call it chrominance to luminance, but it's basically group delay uh, at, f- at 54 megahertz. So by just moving that filter down to four, 52 megahertz, it wasn't causing that ghosting effect, the cartoon effect at, uh, on channel two. And so what I'm gonna do now is I'm gonna move to the high side uh, and we can actually talk about how, you know, kind of how that shift works. So all I do is I take, uh, I don't have to move my channel zero, I can just move my channel one from the low side of the diplex filter. And remember, I set a reference on there. Um, So we'll still be able to see the low pass side, but now when we go to the Nano VNA screen, we'll be able to see the high pass side and the low pass side put together. And that kind of, that shows the crossover that we're talking about here. Uh, So the blue line is still the low pass side of the diplex filter. And the, the yellow line is the high-pass side of the diplex filter. And this kind of gives you the, 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 the idea that the low-pass and a the high-pass, they're crossing over really tight. And to build that circuitry to make that crossover, it, it's not it's not trivial. It's, it's not simple to do for an RF engineer. And as you were talking, John, what we were, you know, like, in the C-Core days, what we had to do is we would just move this crossover from 4254 a little lower in frequency to 4254 uh, to 4052 and You know if you can imagine a channel 2 is sitting right here where marker 2 is I think that's marker 2 actually sitting right at 53 megahertz. I can move it up right there to 54 megahertz uh, So what you can see here there's that yellow line starts to drop down. Even, even with a 54 megahertz split, there's a little bit of drop down, a little bit of attenuation just before marker two. So the yellow line is, is kind of rolling off a little bit. And it's, that, it's not as much the roll off that causes the, the chrominance to luminance delay that you were referring to. And that would cause the color variation the channel two in the analog signal Um, What we're looking at here is just S21 or insertion loss. There is something that's not being displayed on here. I'm not going to add it in real time, but uh, there is something called phase delay, um, which generally in the cable industry we talk about group delay. And that phase delay impacts the timing in which signals transit through the coax network. Um, so circuits closer to signals closer to 54 megahertz get delayed just a little bit more than signals at say 52 megahertz. Um, so the higher the frequency, or, you know, the, it, it, it does impact the, the way those signals transit, and that's exactly why you are seeing, or you know, in analog signals, we're seeing that chrominance to luminance delay.
1: Go back to your your uh, d- display again. Yep. This reminds me of uh, an issue I had with a customer where it was a 4254 split, but the amplifiers were upgraded from a 30 megahertz upstream to then a 4254. And all they did was create circuitry to take the 30 filter and on top of it, build another filter to go to 42. So you had a five to 42 upstream but right at 30 megahertz was a crossover of two different filters on top of each other. And there was group delay and blow MER right at 30. So it wasn't even near the band edge of the filter per se, but not knowing that this filter was really two filters on top of each other uh, created a problem at 30 instead of at 42, where you would normally see group delay problems.
0: Yes. Yeah, so so taking exactly what you said. We There are times where in, in cable plants, there are legacy filters out there. There are 30 megahertz, you know, like a, maybe a 30, 52 megahertz filter out there um, from times where we weren't worried about transporting doxes in the return. And what that causes? So you know, we see this blue line; it's happily going up to 42 megahertz and then rolling off. Imagine if that blue line only went up to 30 megahertz and rolled off. However, we are now running DOXIS in a plant, and we want to try to run a DOXIS channel at maybe 35, 38 megahertz in a return. But that's simply not going to work because our low-pass filter is only going out to 30 megahertz. And then it's it's cutting off. So trying to run a DOCSIS channel above 30 megahertz, it's absolutely not going to be able to reach the CMTS. Because imagine you know imagine this is our 30 megahertz cutoff here, where the blue signal is, and we're trying to run a DOXS carrier somewhere out here above that 30 megahertz cutoff. That signal is going to be attenuated by the low pass section of the diplex filter, and You know, Maybe we have an old amplifier out there, and we're trying to scratch our heads and say, why is that channel, why is that cable modem not able to support a channel higher than 30 megahertz? Well, we have to upgrade the filters in that amplifier. More than likely, we probably have to replace that entire amplifier.
1: And sometimes it turned out to be the accessories. Yes. Upstream equalizers. Yes, we could
0: have an old equalizer in there that doesn't go past 30 megahertz. Uh,
1: Upstream and downstream equalizers, right? Yes.
0: So the the other thing that we see happen, which I was mentioning when I was describing this circuitry in the the diplex filter itself, if one of these capacitors pops off or someone sticks a a finger in there and, and adjusts one of these inductors or breaks one of them off, the same thing could happen. This diplex filter that's going out to 42 megahertz... If it misses a component or a component's misadjusted, now instead of going out to nice and flat out to 42 megahertz, maybe it only goes out to 36 megahertz and then it starts to roll off. And we can see this with sweep equipment. Um, I've seen technicians use sweep equipment to actually see a diplex filter rolling off too early. The other place that we see it very often is using proactive network maintenance tools. And we'll see the group delay in the cable modems get really bad. What, what this group delay or this roll-off in the diplex filter will do is cause cable modems to sometimes deregister. Uh, for when we're using multiple uptre- upstreams, one of the upstreams will be either in a partial mode or an impair mode or maybe completely offline. And these are scenarios where subscribers will call in if they have a high speed tier. They'll say, yeah, I'm not getting the speeds I'm getting. It can cause issues with voice traffic, with real-time traffic. It can cause a lot of uncorrectable code where it basically causes a lot of issues. And it all goes back to the diplex filter not being tuned and, and, and working as designed. So these show up as like red modems in, in PNM. And understanding, you know, why, why are we getting the red modems? Why is group delay, which is a, a metric that we collect in Proactive Network Maintenance so high, Goes back to understanding, you know, maybe our diplex filters are not working correctly, or even maybe our upstream carriers are too close to that diplex filter roll-off region, and so just you know having that basic understanding, these diplex filters are out there. We don't want to have our DOCSIS carriers too close to the diplex filter roll-off region, and then if we have bad diplex filters, we need to go out and replace those diplex filters. Or as you know, as John says, maybe we have a thirty megahertz diplex filter out there that we. We have to
1: replace. You're also you're also doing a perfect test where the other port is terminated to 75 ohms. Yes. What happens if you take the terminator off and just put a cable or a cable to a splitter or a tap? But if you take it off completely, then it should look pretty bad, right?
0: Yeah. So I mean, if you take just the terminator off, it doesn't it doesn't get as bad. But to your point, John, if if you have a non ideal load on here, um, of course, I have lots of cables around. So if you if you start putting, and I I, I didn't test this, so I, I don't know exactly what it's going to look like on this diplex filter, uh, but you start putting unterminated cables on, it's going to change the response somewhat. Um, in this case, it's not having a significant impact, uh, but if you go out in higher frequencies, it, it will have some some change on it. Um, so ideally, these diplex filters, like anything else we talk about, they want to have an ideal 75 ohm termination. Uh, we're not seeing a major impact on on this uh on the cable the isolation
1: here. is good enough that any reflection that comes back is attenuated Correct. so much that it's not really affecting it
0: and I, and i do want to mention um this these diplex filters are made by um eagle i think it's eagle comtronics um yeah. these guys make really good diplex filters they're based out of uh up, upper state upstate new york um so I've I've generally got these anytime I'm doing anything in the head end. They're a very reliable diplex filter, so I, I do recommend them. If anyone's looking for head end diplex filters, mm-hmm. so anything else from your perspective on diplex filters, John?
1: No, I mean uh, just understanding the different splits and uh, and uh, uh, using the proper splits that you're you're trying to work with 85. You know, when 85 came out, the spec was um, 85, 105, And I remember Cisco pers- purposely made our amplifiers 85.102 because legacy set-top boxes, uh, out-of-band signaling at 75, had frequency agility to put at 104. So Comcast wanted to have their downstream set-top box signal at 104, and an 85.105 would notch it out and it wouldn't work. So we had to make our diplex motors 85-102 on purpose. So we tightened it up just a little bit just to squeeze in their out-of-band signal for their legacy set-top box at 104.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and and so I think, you know, as we go higher in frequency, that crossover that we showed, like the 4254 crossover, that gets even more and more complicated. So that crossover has to get wider and wider. So as we go talk about, like, going to an 85 split, a 204 split, Maybe even a higher split than that, that crossover starts to get wider and wider. And that crossover I'm talking about is a difference between the low-pass filter and the high-pass filter.
1: What's funny is um, the highest upstream, according to Docsis 4.0, is 696, I think. Mm -hmm. It's it's like 696. 25% of 696, so 700. One-fourth of 700 is over 150 megahertz. Yeah, so that that's the, that's going to be a crossover upstream, between it. Your downstream is not going to start to like eight fifty. Yeah. <laughs> so obviously, if we do an upstream that big, we got to go to one point eight gigahertz because you just got rid of all your downstream. The yeah, one hundred fifty you know? megahertz of downstream between upstream, gone. <laughs> between the upstream and the diplex filter, you're basically starting at eight hundred fifty megahertz. Yep.
0: It is a uh, it's a change for sure. A conundrum. It's a conundrum to say. (laughs) All right. All right, so the next test I have here, um, I have a a piece of RG59, pretty common piece of coax that you're gonna have in any subscriber's house. It has a couple of low-quality connectors on it. Uh, These are not compression connectors. These are crimp-on connectors, which I strongly recommend no one uses. Unfortunately, we find these all the time in subscriber's houses. Uh, right now, I have it connected up. If we go to the uh, to the Nano VNA screen, we'll see we have a reasonably flat response. Uh, let me set a reference here. And what I'm going to do is what happens so frequently in most subscribers' homes, and even on the back of the co- back of cable modems, is I'm just going to, as you saw, I just did probably an eighth of a t- eighth of a turn, maybe not even that much. To uh, uh, actually, you didn't see it because it was it was here. But uh, I just did a, an eighth of a turn to loosen up this connector here, and and you can see on a Nano VNA screen, uh, return loss is just bouncing all over the place because I set a reference here. Just as I kind of shake the cable here, this is a problem that happens very very frequently to subscribers. And subscribers will start complaining, you know, my modem's gone offline, I'm having speed issues, I'm having voice issues. If I turn it another, just a, a fraction of a turn here, you can see what starts to happen in the, in the low frequency. And I, I almost have to just put it down to, I'll just drop it down. It becomes very intermittent. And, and this goes on to one of the reports that we use called the intermittent modem report, where the modem's transmit power will start to fluctuate a lot. And now you just saw, you saw very shortly there how the, uh, the low frequency can bounce around a lot. And so we're seeing a lot of intermittent things occur on this modem, particularly in the insertion loss. And remember, this connector is, I did not loosen this connector more than a quarter of a turn right now. So imagine the frustration of the technician when they go to this subscriber's house who's been complaining about their poor quality service the technician might measure at the at the drop or at the ground block things will be fine they might even go in and measure at the cable modem and depending on exactly when they measure things might be fine at the cable modem finding this loose connector is going to be really really difficult you can see i am my hands are free i'm not touching the loose connector but you can continuously see how return loss is getting really bad and sometimes good, and also insertion loss is getting better and worse at different times. And now, you know, I'm gonna simulate like the dog running over the cable. So all I did is I, I just adjusted that connector just a little bit, and if I just bounce it around a little bit, and I, and I, I make the analogy quite often. You know, the dog runs over the cable, a, a kid walks over the cable, And that will, I mean, it's enough to cause major impacts uh, on this cable. If this cable happens to be, you know, maybe this is a drop cable. So every time the wind blows, this cable, again, that that loose connector is going to get just slight variations in it. And we can see sometimes it's, as we sweep through, we're going to notice it more to high frequency or notice it more to low frequency. Oftentimes, it's going to be more impacted at low frequencies than it will high frequencies because we say low frequencies can't jump, high frequencies can't swim. The jump aspect of this is that we have we have an intermittent grounding issue here, and so the low frequencies will very often get impacted more than high frequencies because we just don't have a good ground.
1: So we, when you talk about low frequencies can't jump, you're really talking about uh, a, a jumping across the center conductor crack not really the ground the ground issue can create suckouts throughout the whole spectrum um but when we talk about high frequencies can't swim yeah i mean some of the signals get grounded off to ground because the water is a conductor at some point especially when the aluminum housing starts getting corrosion and salt now you have a conducting water in there with higher signals are getting blocked so they can't swim uh, lower frequencies can still go through the center conductor. Whereas a crack, you know, in the center conductor to the Caesar screw, uh, the lower frequencies can't make the jump, but the higher frequencies can. Um, so you see low end roll off, right? That reminded me also of um, uh, can you go back to your display? Sure. Um, um, so the, the insertion loss changing on the fly and how that relates to the CMTS. Let's say it's a Doxus 2 modem. And I'm getting ready to send the station maintenance to that modem every 15, 20 seconds. And I see the modems hitting my CMTS at minus three. I'm saying, all right, jack your level's up by plus three. Then the connector changes and it's like, no, now I need you at minus three. Now I need you at plus three. Yes. So when we do that communication, we do every 15, 20 seconds. But if it's not successful, we go into a fast mode every one second. We're like, change, change. No, change the other way. No change the other way. You know, you're not, once we hit like three or four changes in a row that are not stabilizing, you'll see an asterisk next to the receive level on the CMTS. Mm-hmm. So if you do a show cable modem command, you instead of an exclamation point showing max power, you'll see an asterisk, which indicates it's going into a noise averaging mode. So if you see a lot of these uh, upstream receive levels bouncing around in a little asterisk, it's because the CMTS determined it was bouncing around, and we're going to kind of average it out a little bit because I can't waste my time telling like 10,000 modems to adjust their levels every one second. You know, I want to check their levels every 15, 20 seconds and move on. You know, that's just part of the keep alive and the station maintenance.
0: And and what would a modem like this, uh, would a modem like this show up on a flap list that has the loose connector yep.
1: on it? Yep. So and if you do showcase modem flap list, you would see. Um, insertions means the modem is going online, offline, or in it one and it two offline and it one and it two offline. That's insertions. You have misses, um, misses are a mess up of the T3 timer and the three, I call it the, the, the three level handshake. You know, the, the CMTS, uh, talks to the modem, modem talks back. CMTS is like, okay, it's a three level, ha- three layer, three level handshake, um, And if that doesn't work and the modem goes, the CMTS goes into that fast polling. then there's probably a T3 timeout. You'll see it on the modem. And then that translates to a miss on the flat list. So if I hit say a lot of hits, that's a perfect three-level handshake. I'm done. Hit, 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 good. But miss to hit ratio, that's a bad thing. If I get five misses for every one hit, that meant the CMTS went into like that fast mode five times in a row. Change Change your level, change your level, change your level, change your level shit, I'm moving on to someone else because I get, I'm get wasting my time with you. Yeah. So now it's in the flap list, uh, and now I should be able to track that with the flap list. And look at the modem for T3 timeouts and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, and that's I wanted to hit on that. Like This is our T3 timeout generator right here because I mean people ask yeah. about that all the time. And I'm like, loose connectors, bad cables, loose connectors. <laughs> tight, yeah. And all it takes is a quarter turn on that connector – and now I can move it around. And ah, that, that is a, you know, it's not an ideal connector, but you can see we're not getting those big, big jumps like we were before as I move this connector around. I think there's still yeah. some issues with this connector just because it is a compression connector. But now that I've tightened it up, I can move it around and, and we're not seeing those big crit. dropouts like we, like we were before. Crit, right?
1: our,
0: our return loss has gotten much better. We're, we're below the blue line. The blue line's the reference line, but... All it took was me tightening it up, and and I just fixed all the issues that this customer has been calling in about. I, mm-hmm. Ideally, the way we do it is call the customer and say, hey, tighten up all your customers. We train our customers better, but that's mm-hmm. that's a bit more difficult. So T3 timeouts, tighten your connectors.
1: Yep. Yeah, T4 would be more relegated to downstream problems because uh, if, if you have 16 misses in a row, then yeah, the CMTS will quit talking to the modem, and then it'll get a T4 timeout and it'll start rescanning downstream. So yeah, T3, upstream problem. T4, downstream problem, usually.
0: All right. So I've got another piece of cable here, John. This is the mystery cable for you. You have to try to figure out what the problem with this cable is. As I, oh, let me uh, clear my reference out here. Uh, reset my reference. This
1: is stump the chump. This is stump
0: the chump. Yeah, this is this is the uh, the surprise that I said that I had for you Let's See if you can figure out and and this is a this is a piece of RG6 cable So this would be like a drop cable. It has compression fittings on every end um, Oh no, Boy this this test is not gonna work out like it was I had expected it to so, had some water in it. yeah, yeah, this is my water-filled K one. Fortunately, it dried out. <laughs> <laughs> so this he test is not as down. exciting as it was going to be. Um, we'll have to we'll have to repeat this one at a later time
1: because it's, it, it's
0: it it was water-filled cable that is now dry cable, which <laughs> makes it a very unexciting <laughs> test. <laughs> We'll work on this one later. Um, You know what I'll do is I'll see if I can – let me put it back in some water and we'll see if I can just – I've also seen
1: where um, customers or say the tech is prepping the cable for the home use or the ground block, and they're putting a connector on, and some center conductors, some manufacturers have like a thin film on the center conductor. And you should be able to pull it off like your fingernails. Um, I've seen that film act like a 6 dB pad. There was just enough film on the center conductor to act like padding, like at six dB, right? Like almost exactly six dB, which was crazy because it's like it looked like an actual pad was installed.
0: Yep. And
1: it turned yeah, so, out, disconnected. Look at it, it's like, oh, that's not a very clean center conductor. And it's like, oh, there's like a the film of blue the corrosion. There. Yeah.
0: All right. So the next test, John. This was the one that you suggested on LinkedIn, which I thought is pretty good. Uh, and, and uh, you know, we've come across this many times. It's, it's the, what happens if you take two splitters, each one of these splitters has, you know, four and a half dB of loss in them. You connect them together. You put a yeah. signal in, you get a signal out. What would be the loss through these?
1: Yeah, in theory, you would think three and a half for one, three and a half for another, you lose seven dB. Should
0: have about seven dB of loss through that, right? So Yeah,
1: yeah. And, and when you would, when, that's what you would typically think.
0: Right, Now, now what I did here is I I cut these cables to be equal length, so they're they're phase-matched, so the signals... Well, let's see what happens here on our insertion loss. So we'll put these together, put the goes in to the goes out, and if these cables are cut correctly, everything will be in phase. So now we're connected up, we'll go to the overhead we we'll go to the nano vna and what we see is our actual loss for our Markle 1 here is 0.62 dB so we're only losing 6 tenths of a dB through this system
1: so then you say this is the the reasoning behind power doubling Remember power, parallel hybrid devices, power doubling?
0: And we talked, we had Corvus on, we talked about power doubling hybrids. Yep.
1: Yep. And basically you can split the signal and amplify it and bring it back together. As long as those two paths are exact same length and the signal adds back in phase, then the splitter you're combining actually combines the power and has zero dB loss it actually has three dB gain. Yep. So you lose three and a half on the first splitter, but you gain three dB on the second splitter. Yes. So you're losing about a half a dB, right? And the coax loss.
0: Yeah, and, and so if, if, if you had any, like, you know, just basic um, math theory where you talked about sine waves. If you have two sine waves that are exactly in phase with each other and you add those together, they double in amplitude. If you have Would two you sine mean? waves that are opposite in phase, and you add those together, they subtract and create a flat line. They cancel each yeah. other out. So what we have here is two signals that are exactly in phase. They're adding almost exactly in phase, and they're adding together, and so they're they're basically um, they're doubling the amplitude, which is why they're canceling out the loss of these uh, of these two splitters when they're when they're added together we're getting basically double the amplitude. So now what we can do is, um, just to prove ourselves right or to prove ourselves wrong, uh, the first thing we can do is we can remove one of these cables. We'll do that at the end. Um, we'll remove one of these cables, and, and that way people know that there's no magic here, that these splitters are actually working. Uh, but what I, w- what I wanna show is I'm gonna, I'm gonna take off one of these cables, and I'm going to double the length of the cable, and we can see what happens there. So, we'll take this one off. Well, so, what do you think is going to happen when we double the length of the cable, 50%, John?
1: If you doubled it, it would be back in phase again. So, you need to do 50% longer. So, one cable could be one foot, and the other cable could be one and a half feet. Okay.
0: Well, I'll just I'll go straight to your suggestion. I'll, I'll double the length of the cable. I'm not double it, but yeah.
1: Yeah, 50% higher, yeah. So here we go.
0: So exactly to where you ask, and what we see here now is markers. Th- I, I
1: doubt. I doubt that you made it fifty percent long. You probably did double it, and and uh, it's. Sort of back in phase, but not perfect. Not perfect, yeah. Like, I think if you added how long is your cables in between a foot?
0: Uh, yeah, this th- each one is each one of these cables is exactly 12 inches long.
1: Yeah, if you made one six inches and added to the 12 inch, that would be uh <laughs> 1.5 of the original one. Yeah, do that one. Do that yeah, one. I suspect. Yeah, I, so I, th- I think you just double the cable, which when you double it, you put it back in phase again.
0: Correct, but I thought that's what you asked me to do.
1: No, I said make, the, make one cable two foot and the other cable three foot.
0: Oh, okay. Well, I don't have that many cables, John.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, or make one cable one foot and the other one 1.5 feet. Or... Okay, well, I can do that. Or you can keep one one foot and the other one just six inches, but then you have to make it really tight. But in theory, when we do that and the signals add at a phase, I'm thinking 20, 30 dB of attenuation. In theory, it should be 60. <laughs> you know, it should be the signals totally got rid of each other.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, unfortunately, don't, they don't actually do that because we end up with a, uh, a resonant frequency in here, which we're going to see. Yeah.
1: And <laughs> the resonant
0: frequency just, uh, since that's what we were getting earlier. So, <laughs> just have to make sure we are sweeping here. Stop that, sweep that. Oh, I forgot to put us back up to a, a gigahertz, that's why. Sorry, John, we've put us back up to a thousand megahertz, and we'll see what we're expecting to see. All right. Where we get the... So we end up with a resonant frequency. Uh, the resonant frequency is based on the length of this cable here, so we're seeing that suck out. So now if I go back to what you were asking, we'll, we'll see... Uh, the expected results. We were just seeing before the roll-off uh, getting into the resonant frequency there. And so if we put the uh, twice the length of. What's funny off.
1: is, by going through the two splitters without combining, you're losing the seven dB we talked about.
0: Yeah, and you're seeing that right now. Yeah. Just for one leg, but it's also unterminated. The uh, one splitter is. Uh, so putting on, so when we go uh, one foot on one end and three foot on the other, which is what I'm setting up right now, what we see is a uh, multiple resonant frequencies. It kind of looks like a mess. Once I hook this up, and there we go. So I think this is more. Um, I, and I think, to your point, it's not precisely uh, 180 degrees out of phase, but we get close to it and we, we see this standing wave uh, that occurs when we have one cable. So, so we're out of phase with each other, basically. So one cable going through, the short cable going through, and then the longer cable going through. We end up with the signals now when they're adding up at the output, they are, they're basically out of phase. Um, they're not precisely 180 degrees out of phase, but they're significantly out of phase. And we end up with a standing wave in our insertion loss. So uh, the first test shows when we have two cables that are pretty close to being in phase, to your point, John, we end up with very little insertion loss—only you know, eight tenths of a dB. But once you get cables, then we start to get out of phase. Now we get that standing wave pattern, where we have two signals being combined here, not in phase, and we create a standing wave, and it gets to be pretty ugly.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. So we—we've actually, I've actually run into customer environments, subscriber environments where. Um, subscribers are trying to do something similar to this because they think, well, if I combine two signals, like my neighbor's signal and my signal together, um, I'm going to get higher signals combined, and it just doesn't work that way because we have this this phased environment going on where, you know, unless they know exactly what they're doing, and, and by the way, you know, it's just not... Not really ever going to happen. We are trying to borrow someone else's signal and your own signal and combine them together and and ever get them to go directly into phase like that.
1: Well, I, I had a, a case like that. A customer, um, they had a four-port tap, and the customer had low levels. So they're like, I have an empty port here, so let's just combine the two ports in the tap. And in theory, if both cables off the tap spigots are the same length and you combine it, and then you run the one cable to the customer, they would, they did get three dB more level um, um, for their downstream. But what happens on the upstream? The upstream signal has to go through the splitter that you put there and then it's combined the two spigots on the tap that you don't know how those spigots are combined in the tap. You don't know if they're on the same internal splitter like that testing we did the other day where Two splitters side-by-side are different than the two, say, the two spigots that are catty-corner because they might be internal splitters that are different. The layout of the splitters inside the tap. Right. Um, So, yeah, they were causing all kinds of problems. The the downstream level was bumped up by 3 dB, but the upstream level was who knows what was happening. Uh, You don't know. uh, You can't guarantee anything.
0: All right. So I think the last thing that we can look at today is I have – a common uh, filter that gets used on the lines, gets used in head ends all the time, and this is uh, this is a a band stop filter that's used to trap out your video channels. Uh, oftentimes, when you're just providing high speed service to uh, to uh, subscribers, and a lot of times, what we see with these filters is they can sometimes go bad if they get hit by lightning. Uh, So the Nano VNA is just a great way if you want to test your filter, uh, if you think it might be bad or if you think it may not be blocking the channels, and verify that the filter is actually doing what it's supposed to be doing, plug it into your Nano VNA, and we can go over then and verify that it is indeed blocking the channels that you want to block. So you can move your one marker over, move marker two over in this case, and we can say, okay, indeed. Uh, the filters passing everything up to in this case uh, everything up to 90 megahertz so all of our return channels are being passed then we can see it it blocks everything out Uh, so no nothing no signals are going to be passed until we get back up to about 180 megahertz and then it's going to pass all the video channels between 180 and 200 megahertz and then here we can see it blocks out everything in this region, so any video channels that you don't want the subscriber to get into this region are going to be completely blocked out with good isolation all the way down to minus 40 dB, so no chance. Any set-top box or anything else is going to be able to pick up those signals. And then we move the marker further up, and we can see right here around 470 megahertz and higher, all of those channels are going to be passed, which are normally going to be your prior your DOCSIS channels. Uh, up above that range. So this would be a quick way that you can just go through and verify all the filters, make sure they're doing what they're expected to be see, to to be doing. I have seen and, and I see this a lot of times when we do our our full band capture analysis in in the nimble p and m application where uh, definitely subscribers are able to get channels where they can't where they shouldn't be able to get them because sometimes you'll see where this we have this nice sharp cutoff. You can see channels coming through because something breaks inside the filter, inside this little filter here, and instead of having that nice sharp roll off, it'll, it'll kind of just slowly attenuate down and the filter's basically not doing what it's supposed to be doing. Uh, so I think that's an opportunity for operators to use something like a you know this cheap nano VNA to do quality inspections of filters. Yeah, you know, maybe it's a, an issue from the vendor they're buying them from, or maybe you know after they've been out in the line for a while they start to degrade, and now they have an more opportunity like, to test them.
1: More like the customer ruined it on purpose. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Wait, the subscriber ruined it on purpose, and I and I know that happens because I've I've read on sites they you know they talk about drilling through these and putting a piece of copper through them, so it's
1: it, it does or, happen. Or I've heard of baking them or boiling them. Yep, you know, putting them in a boiling pot or baking them or trying to ruin the components, running so they don't certain,
0: work. Uh, running electricity yeah. through them. There's there's a whole host of ways that uh, people have come up with bypassing these filters intentionally.
1: And go back to your display again. Because this this brings up a uh, uh, a thing I've seen where, you know, typically DOCSIS is at 453 and above or 500 megahertz and above, but then DOCSIS 3.1 comes out and you're like, oh, the spec says it can start at 258, and you ran a spectrum so you're planning on starting at 258. Yeah, and I'm so now I'm putting that I just put the
0: green point. marker down around 250 megahertz so everyone kind of has an idea where 258 is going to be from the spec standpoint.
1: Yeah, so. There's cases where we do run into, case, uh, you know, someone puts a through one modem in the house and they forgot about this filter.
0: Got to go you find these mean? filters. Yes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, so and that's, that's actually
0: something modem. we do with um, so, some of the new modeling we're doing with P and M is is to be able to go out and say, hey, you know, where are these filters out there? So you can do that as part of pre-checking, and and I mean that's basically yeah. a function of full band capture in the cable modems, uh, even hard. though your subscriber that you're looking at may not have. A full band capture cable modem. Their their neighbor may have a full band capture cable modem, so you can still have that visibility to say, well, you know, where are these filters located in my plant? Using that full band capture capability and modems to to do that and do that analysis for you to say, do I have a filter in that section of the plant or not? Or maybe even my in head end.
1: Yeah, in this case, a lot of times, you know, people cross bond the three uh, one OFDM with single carrier qualm, so single carrier qualm will probably lock on. I might use it as a primary. But then as the modem comes up and tries to cross-bond with OFDM, it'd be like, I can't do it. So it goes into partial mode. Um, or the modem ends up not using that bonding group at all because it can't see it. Uh, and then it ends up uh, on single carrier qualm. So you end up in 3.0 mode and not one mode as intended.
0: Right. Completely makes sense. So... Um, Well, I had this, uh, I put my cable, my water, my piece of cable back in water for a little while, and I just want to see if it had enough time to absorb it. The One one thing about coax cable, and and so we had Larry Wilcott on a while ago in a show, and he was talking about the water soak cable. Um, The bad thing about coax cable is if it has cracks or nicks in the the, uh, outer shielding, which this piece of coax does, is... Coax will absorb water, and if it rains, rain will get in the coax. That's the bad part. The good part is if you leave it out of the water too long, it will dry out, particularly if you're trying to do a demo. Uh, It looks like I I put this coax back in water for just a few minutes, the time that we've been talking, and we can see this this is why when it rains outside, plants get worse sometimes, and subscribers have problems. Um, so again, this is a this is a piece of RG6 coax. I have compression fittings in it. This piece of coax, uh, Mia, if we could just quickly get the overhead on it, yeah, you got the overhead there. Um, if you see, there's a I just have the shield nicked on this coax. Explosion. And all I did is I, I set this uh, I set this in water so the coax could absorb some water in there. And now if we go back to the VNA screen here, you can see what the water does to that coax, John, and and hopefully the subscribers yeah. can too. What,
1: what was a real eye opener for me with uh, Larry? I didn't really think about it that much. Is you know we used the formula four hundred and ninety two times the velocity of propagation divided uh, by the the periodicity, right? The separation in your spikes to find a distance. The problem is the velocity of propagation changes when there's water yes. in the dielectric, and it's not just dielectric anymore
0: and the periodicity of these spikes changes as you go higher in frequency because as i mentioned before high high frequencies can't swim so the higher the you go in frequency this periodicity actually changes so when you're like trying to say well where is this water at or you know could i determine where the water at is at mm-hmm. that really screws us up too because if if we try to measure the distance between these spikes they actually change as we get higher in frequency but that actually can be used to our benefit because that helps us differentiate between does this piece of coax here have water in it or is it actually is it damaged now this piece of coax is damaged because it has a nick in the in the uh, outer conductor here which is letting the water go in but what it does is is because that periodicity changes it lets us know this is a piece of coax that actually has water in it. And if I wait maybe a few hours or a few days, that water's going to dry out, and I'm not going to be able to find it again. So from an actionability standpoint, I have to, I have to know when to look for this coax. Of course, if it's, if it's in the ground and it's you know, constantly being surrounded by water, maybe it's always going to be like that, which is a bad thing for the customer. But this customer, if it's an aerial coax, this customer may only experience this problem when it rains, and it may be very intermittent for them. As we just saw here, like a few minutes ago, I couldn't do this. I had to put it back in the water, let it sit for 10 minutes, like during a, a, an hour-long rainstorm, and then this customer service is going to go to crap. At the high frequencies, as you can see on the screen there, it's
1: horrible. Absolutely horrible. Didn't Larry also mentioned that if that water freezes... It doesn't it, look
0: so bad. It, yeah, if it freezes, it gets a little better, um, okay. but it, it doesn't fix it. It doesn't take it away. Yeah. Uh, it just gets a little better. So then, when, yeah. but the water's not going to go away. When it thaws out, it's going to get really bad again. So, depending on climates, it's, it's definitely going to yeah. have impacts as well. So. Yes. Um, yeah, that's water soak cable. It is definitely an impact. Uh, I definitely want to say you know, thanks to Larry and his team for identifying this as something even new that we can add to our proactive na- network maintenance programs to be able to identify these types of impairments. And using the nano-VNA is just a way that we can test it in the labs and do more evaluations and, and do this type of cool work, this neat stuff that we can do with it. So... It's cool. It's fun. The nano VNA just gives us more visibility into it. And as I said before, it's a great training tool. It's a great tool for operators to use for this type of stuff. Costs 35 bucks. Take it out in the field. Do full fun stuff with it.
1: I think it's just good. It, it, the visual drives home the information and and uh, the theory. Yes. Right? We could talk theory all day, but when you actually see it working uh, and it works out sort of the way you expected um, and you can make sense of it,
0: Yep, yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, so uh, some comments in the chat room here um, from uh, Green. It says, uh, "Could you do a bad repair on a cut cable, like tape the copper core together and twist the shielding together? How people do such bad repairs?" <laughs> you know, Green, you're absolutely correct. That stuff does happen. I think you know exactly. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, uh, you know what we're if we, we we're, we're at time we're at uh, just a few minutes before the hour. so I mean what he what you're what you're talking about is actually correct where people just cut the line and they they twist the center conductor together, they twist the shield and con- together. I think that'd be an, an, another test that we could do maybe, maybe at another time, another podcast or another live stream we're doing, John. But uh, I have to imagine the reflections, the return loss on that and the assertion loss has to look awfully, awfully yeah.
1: nasty. Like, how, how do you get back to 75 ohms at that point? You can't. <laughs> you you have no dielectric. Yeah, You have no dielectric. You don't have proper spacing. Uh, the, the 75 ohms is is related to the center conductor size uh, the outer conductor difference or distance from the center conductor and the dielectric in between. Yep. And you're going to tell me you're going to take a center conductor and wrap it together and and the outer conductor you're going to try to braid it back. Yeah. Uh, but how, I mean how works.
0: many I've seen it so many times where you just pull yeah. something up and it's like center conductor twisted and they sometimes they even go the extra length and they put wire connect connectors on it. <laughs> just for good measure. <laughs> so all right well john uh thank you for your time this was an interesting episode thanks for everyone on a chat room thanks for catching our echo too we got that cleared up and uh this was fun i enjoyed it thanks for everyone for watching and we'll be back soon for more on get your tech on our show on all things docs so so long see you next time
1: all right take care